A Focused Summary of Chapters 19 and 20 of Frankenstein Frankenstein and Clerval resolved to stay in London several months. The former, to obtain the information he needed for the completion of his promise, and the latter, to enjoy intercourse with the men of genius who resided there. There was a time when, for Frankenstein, this journey would have been a source of inexhaustible pleasure. But the deaths of William and Justine had placed an insurmountable barrier between him and his fellow men, and had placed a blight on his existence. Clerval's design was to use his knowledge of India to assist in the progress of European colonization and trade. The only check on his enjoyment was the despondency of his friend, for whom the gathering of materials for his new creation had become like the torture of single drops of water continually on the head. One day they received an invitation from an acquaintance in Scotland, who asked them to join him there, and Frankenstein, desirous of seeing its wondrous works of nature, agreed to go. They departed in March, intending to make a tour of various sites along the way, and to arrive in Scotland in July. In Oxford, they were entranced by remembrance of the great historic events that had occurred there, and by its picturesque and ancient beauty. The tomb of Hampton momentarily elevated Frankenstein's soul from its debasing fears to contemplate divine ideas of liberty and self-sacrifice. But as much as he enjoyed the scene at Oxford, his enjoyment was embittered by memory of the past and anticipation of the future. From here they journeyed to Matlock, whose villages, hills, and little cabinets of natural history reminded them of the scenery of Switzerland. When this comparison prompted Clerval to pronounce the name of Chamonix, Frankenstein trembled and hastened to leave. Next they passed two months in Cumberland and Westmoreland, whose snow-capped mountains, lakes, and rocky streams so strongly resembled those of the Swiss mountains. There they made pleasant acquaintances, who almost cheated Frankenstein into happiness, and Clerval felt he could spend his whole life there. But the appointment with their Scotch friend approached, and they moved on. Frankenstein was tormented by fear that the monster would be disappointed he had neglected his promise for so long, and would wreak vengeance upon his unguarded relatives. Sometimes, too, he thought the monster might murder his companion, and when these thoughts possessed him, he followed Clerval like a shadow. They visited Edinburgh, which, with its romantic castle and beautiful environs, might have interested the most unfortunate being. Then they moved on to Perth, where Frankenstein parted from Clerval, saying he wished to enjoy a month or two in solitude, and would return with a lighter heart. Henry wished to dissuade him, but seeing that he was bent on this plan, he ceased to remonstrate. Frankenstein crossed the northern highlands on his way to the remotest of the Orkney Islands, which he had chosen as the scene of his labors. It was little more than a rock, with barren soil, miserable cows, and a few inhabitants with gaunt and scraggy limbs. There he stayed in a squalid hut 
where he could work ungazed at and unmolested. He devoted his mornings to labor, and at night he walked along the stony beach and listened to the roaring sea. For his first creation, he had worked with an enthusiastic frenzy that blinded him to the horror of it. Now he went into it with a cold heart and sickened at the work of his hands. Immersed in solitude and in his detestable occupation, he grew restless and nervous, and every moment feared to meet his persecutor. But he worked on, with a mixture of eager hope and obscure forebodings of evil. One evening, as he sat idle, he began reflecting on the effects of what he was doing. Three years before, engaged in the same labor, he had created a fiend who had desolated his heart and filled it with remorse. Now he was about to form another being, who might become ten thousand times more malignant than her mate. He had made a compact to quit the neighborhood of man, but she might refuse to comply. The monster had sought a companion in this creation, but she might turn from him in disgust, exasperating him with fresh provocation. Even if they did leave Europe, they might produce children and propagate a race of devils upon the earth. He had been moved by the monster's sophisms and struck senseless by his threats, but for the first time the wickedness of his promise burst upon him. He trembled, and as he looked up, he saw through the window the face of the demon, a ghastly grin on his wrinkled lips. Seeing the malice on the monster's face, Frankenstein thought with madness on the promise to create another like him, and he tore to pieces the thing on which he was engaged. The monster saw this, howled with a devilish despair, and withdrew. Frankenstein locked the door, made a vow never to resume his labors, and sat alone in the solitary gloom. A few minutes later, he heard the door creak, and he was overcome by the sensation of helplessness in dreams when you try to fly from danger, but are rooted to the spot. The monster entered, shut the door, approached, and asked, Do you dare destroy my hopes? Frankenstein proclaimed that he would never create another being like him, and no threats could move him to that act of wickedness. The monster gnashed his teeth and cried out that he would have his revenge, saying, Your hours will pass in dread and misery, and soon the bolt will fall which must ravish you from your happiness forever. As he turned to go, he told Frankenstein that he would be with him on his wedding night. A few moments later, Frankenstein saw him in a boat shooting across the waters with an arrowy swiftness. Frankenstein paced his room, condemning himself for not having engaged the monster in mortal combat, and wondering who would be his next victim. The thought that he might die on his wedding night did not move him to fear, but the thought of Elizabeth's tears tormented him. The next morning he walked on the beach of the sea, and he wished that he might live forever on that barren rock, uninterrupted by any shock of misery. At noon he was overcome by sleep, 
and he awoke refreshed, but still with the fiend's words ringing in his ears. As he sat on the shore, a fishing boat arrived, bringing him a letter from Clerval, who entreated him to come to Perth so they might travel back together to London. He decided to leave in two days, but first he would have to perform the loathsome task of packing up the instruments of his odious work. He conveyed his instruments out of the room. Then he collected the mangled remains of the half-finished creature and placed them in a basket with some stones, determining to throw them into the sea. A permanent alteration had taken place in his feelings, and never for a moment did he consider renewing his labors. He put his basket in a skiff and sailed out from the shore. When a cloud passed over the moon and he was enveloped in darkness, he threw his basket into the water and listened to it gurgle as it sank. Feeling lulled by the sea, he stretched himself out in the bottom of the boat, let it drift, and fell asleep. He awoke to violent winds, and if he attempted to change course, the boat would fill with water. He felt a terror that he might be driven into the wide Atlantic, and that it would become his grave. A few hours later, the wind died away, and he saw land to the south. The certainty of life rushed like a flood of warm joy to his heart. He saw vessels on the shore, and tracing the land behind them, a steeple, and he resolved to sail for this town, where he might procure food. When he reached his landing place, he was approached by men who greeted him inhospitably. When he asked whether such rudeness was their custom, one replied that it was their custom to hate villains. A crowd soon gathered round, and an ill-looking man told Frankenstein he must come with him to the magistrate and account for the death of a man who had been murdered there the previous night. Frankenstein was startled, but he recovered himself, knowing he was innocent and it could be easily proved. Little did he know the calamity that would soon overwhelm him with horror and extinguish in him all fear of death. 